We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. So we are nearing the end of our series on the book of Daniel, and it has been a wild ride. But today we are in Daniel 9, and it is such a beautiful part of the story and the text. The first few verses in Daniel 9 I'm going to read is not narrative. So we're talking about genre, literature genre here. It's not narrative like the first six chapters or apocalyptic, like chapter 7 and 8. But this type of uh, literature here falls within the, the genre of confession. And so let me read to you these first six verses. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. This might be interesting to you. It might not be, but for me it is because three, I guess four years ago we were preaching through Esther, and Ahasuerus, the name there after Darius, is the guy who married Esther, just to put you in the timeline, like same kind of, socio-political kind of context. So I, lo I love this very much, what happens, because if you've been tracking, you know there's these themes of being human versus being a beast versus being a statue made of gold. And so, so as we've moved through these different stories and, and images all kind of revolving around those ideas and symbols, we suddenly now get to experience what the soft heart does when it's been restored. We've arrived at this key moment in the text where these stone hearts, these hearts made of gold, or these hearts that's, that have been reduced to nothing, these kind of stone, broken hearts begin to warm and tender. And I love it so much because, so if you haven't been tracking, or just, it's, this is like the really quick, like, in the last episode, there's narrative in chapters one to six, where you have all these great stories, um, stories, and, and they're filled with violence and forced assimilation and like confrontation with idolatrous empire. And the narrative in those first six chapters ends with a story of being thrown into the den of lions, a place of terror and utter powerlessness, before then launching into a long apocalyptic text all about monsters, both terrifying and abhorrent, a dream-like literature where the traumatized community is able to process and face their complex trauma, seeing it for what it is. Monstrous ideologies have dehumanized them and made them into monsters. No one gets to be human in this system. There are greedy eaters and disempowered eaten. There are those building kingdoms and generating wealth and those enslaved to the death-bent system with no imagination of an alternative way of being human. The apocalyptic dreams helped traumatized and disempowered people to take their voice back to begin to recover their story from those who tried to erase it and co-opt it and force it to exist only within the ultimate story of the empire itself. And this is important and it was empowering and it's like a wild text, that apocalyptic stuff, but now before we can just say like, and then everything worked out, there must be a descent into grief 
And it's difficult for us because we want to read the story and get to the solution, uh, get to the big things that happen. But Daniel brings it to a pause in chapter 9, and it's like, in the first year of Darius, who became king over the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, I perceived, and he, he mentions Jeremiah, and it begins, he therefore goes in to make confession. So we know that Daniel's story takes place during the reign of three different violent kings. If, we've, if you've been tracking on um, the chapters one to six, there's three different kings, or three different kings in two different empires, the Babylonians and the Persians. So he, this, like Daniel's story takes place over many decades. You have Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Belshazzar of Babylon, and also Darius of Persia. Uh, and then there's an allusion to the Medes or the Greeks that are kind of coming. And he and his people, so Daniel and his people, have really been in hell. <laughs> Three different like successive empires who, who practice like, um, you know, imperialism and forced assimilation. And Daniel begins this section, this, this part, by naming the time. I love this. Naming the time, you know, in the shadow of the timeless empire. During the reign of Darius, he names the place. This is in Babylon, the Chaldeans. And then he, interestingly, and I love it when there's a crossover in the Bible, uh, it doesn't happen very often. Like, it doesn't happen very often where, like, like, wouldn't it be great in the book of Mark if he's like, Matthew knows what I'm talking about, and then continued? He'd be like, what? That'd be amazing. But you get a crossover. It's like when um, Ed Sheeran showed up on Game of Thrones. You're like, what? <laughs> Jeremiah? Why is Jeremiah here? Uh, he, he alludes to the prophet Jeremiah. So then right away, you're like, the whole book of Jeremiah, I mean, if Okay, hold up. This allusion to Jeremiah here is very important. He names the place, he names the time, he names the promise of Jeremiah's 70 years. So in the exile, the time when the, ba you know, the Babylonian exile, when the people cried out, how long, O Lord, the answer given by the prophet Jeremiah is 70 years. So Jeremiah is like a contemporary voice with Daniel. It's important to realize that before we can begin the work of grief, which is what Daniel chapter 9 is going to be all about, Daniel invites Jeremiah to the send-off. Like, we're about to be sent into a season of grief to let those frozen hearts warm, you know? But Jeremiah is going to be there with us. And this is important because if you don't know your Jeremiah, oh, you awaken with love, Jeremiah. Uh, he's one of the three major prophets in the Old Testament. He was not taken into exile like young Daniel, but rather he was the one prophet who was left behind. And he was left behind to witness the utter destruction of his beloved homeland and his holy temple. Jeremiah writes a lot about weeping and grieving, in fact, more so than any of the other prophets. So often people refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. So for example, in Jeremiah 9 verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Now imagine I could act... And that wasn't just me being like, imagine. But like, I'm picturing someone with like swollen red eyes who's been sobbing and they're afraid that they're never going to stop. And they're just, he's just saying, oh, I wish it was a fountain and it would just never stop. I, 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 um, I, I would weep day and night. Tradition holds that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations to give you an idea of how much like this is his thing. In Jeremiah 4.9, he says, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. In today's age, some people might say he's sensitive. Or uh, he, he is, he is soft-hearted. He can feel. And he can feel everything. And he's not just a sensitive man named Jeremiah. He's also a prophet. 
And in the tradition of our Christian faith and the Jewish faith, our tradition is not that prophets were intellectuals to whom God whispered his prophecies. Prophets were those who embodied the pathos or the passion of God, meaning the prophet is the one who feels what God feels. Jeremiah, therefore, points us toward a God who is weeping like a fountain and writhing in pain and having a panic attack because all he can hear is the war trumpet. And it's important to notice that um, before jumping into Daniel's confession. Like, what does Jeremiah have to do with what we're about to do? The text here, this confession, comes from the heart. Sometimes I think we confuse a confession with an admission of guilt or like an assent to an idea. Like, like, I admit we could have done better. That's different than a confession. Daniel knows that Jeremiah's promise of 70 years, which is here, will give us enough hope to be able to pause and do the deep sacred work of grief. And so we begin, I love this line here, um, we begin with this deeply felt sense that God is above all else, loving and compassionate. You can't, you can't force someone to confess before a cruel and cold-hearted distant judge. That's not a confession. That's a survival technique, right? So first, the confession begins with like, we know that you are loving, that you are steadfast, that you are faithful, that you keep covenant. We know that you are merciful. Like there's this confession first that you are great and awesome and, and, and you have this steadfast love, this, this never-ending love. And when we remember that this is a God who is love, who is above all else, loving and compassionate, this is what we know of God, first of all, before the descent into grief. What we know about God is that God is love. And therefore God's law must be a law of love and compassion, like love your neighbor as yourself a law that protects the vulnerable, a law that holds the powerful accountable, a law that will protect the land and her generous bounty, a law that will create safety for everyone from the top to the very, very bottom. And if we believe this about God's law, that the human one, son of man, Jesus, is the trustworthy one, that only the one who's not been corrupted by power is the trustworthy one, that only the one who, though he was in his very nature, God did not exploit that for his own purposes, but rather became nothing, became nothing in solidarity with the nothings of this world, he is the one we can trust. And we know that the dreams of this God are not dreams of his own image made of gold for everyone to bow down to. The dreams of this God are dreams of shalom and rest for all of creation. So I wonder what 70 years means. Okay, sorry, I can't help it. It's going to be great. We can grieve only when something like scales falls from our eyes. And we can begin to look around us. And we begin to allow ourselves to really notice what we're seeing until we are finally able to slow down and say, something isn't working, you guys. We are not okay. I don't know what to do about it, but we gotta, we gotta do something. I don't have any ideas, but we ought to at least stop and notice that things are not as they ought to be. Like, like that's this kind of, you, 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 you grieve when you're able to actually notice that it's wrong, that there's something wrong. Instead of rushing headlong into like an internal list of all the things that need to get done, stop it and saying, this doesn't feel good. I can read the news. I can check in on my friends. I'm not okay. Like, I would just reflect, and I, and I think this is just me being real for a minute. This last couple of weeks, I've been like, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, knowing that there's like a major genocidal event taking place right now. And our grandchildren will one day look back on this day, time in history, and say, why didn't you guys do anything? 
And, and what will I say? What could I have done? I don't know. I don't even have time to catch up to understand what's going on, let alone to stop and rest and begin to dream of an alternative ending to this violent story. And if I did have time, I would probably just take a nap or, or go outside or maybe like connect with my kids because that's what I need. But then that makes more confusion because Palestinian and Israeli civilians also probably need a nap and a day outside and some time with their living kids. And I can't explain why I get that and they don't. And I don't know what my role is. And oh my gosh, let's go renovate the bathroom. That, let's renovate the bathroom. Let's start another project. That's how I cope. It's like another thing. I have a sermon to write. <laughs> I can't care about this right now. That's a complex space. I have to go into denial or start grieving. I don't know. Um, but in that kind of headspace where I think a lot of us live, uh, Daniel whispers, there's a God who is love, whose compassion is limitless, who holds rest as the ultimate vision of flourishing for all creatures here below and all ye heavenly hosts. And perhaps if we say that over one another, over and over, we will start to find our bodies again, and we will find our hearts again, and we will begin to join with the weeping prophets and feel grief. And you, you, you're allowed to feel grief before you know how to fix the thing that's causing the grief, but we often think we're not allowed. Grief is where the change comes from. What happens when you experience something stressful? This is me. I'm either going to rage out, and if you followed my social media the last two weeks, you're like, I see Nikayla. She's raging. She doesn't know what to do. She's overwhelmed. And the options are rage or run. Fight or flight, I'm like, I'm angry. I'm like, oh, my relatives who might see this are going to really get it when I post this. I'm mad. Or I block Facebook because what's the point? Social media is so dumb. No one cares. Grief is the pause between the stimulus and the reaction. Only from the place of grief can you imagine a different response. And so I realized that grief is where the work begins. There's a quote by Francis Weller, and I love this so much. Awaken, some Awakeners did a book review, a book club on this with Christy Dyer uh, years ago on the wild edge of sorrow. And Francis Weller says, my grief says that I dared to love, that I allowed another to enter the very core of my being and find a home in my heart. Grief is akin to praise. It is how the soul recounts the depth to which someone has touched our lives. To love is to accept the rights of grief. They say <clears throat> the beginning of rehabilitation is acknowledgement that you have a problem, right? That you have a problem that you are powerless to fix on your own. The beginning of recovery, the beginning of sobriety and rehabilitation begins with saying that you need help, that you are not okay. When experiencing addiction, it can feel like you're stuck in a shame loop where you try to regain control over your addiction and it works for a while, you feel proud, there's maybe something stressful, something rocky, it, it, it kind of shakes you and you can relapse and then beat yourself up and feel ashamed and then withdraw more and more into the grip of this man-eating cycle. But the fracture and the opening of the loop begins with grief. A simple statement of truth, I'm not okay and I can't do it on my own, I need help. And from there it is often not just you know, standing there like, hey guys, I need help. It's often raw emotion and vulnerability like you've never seen. And it is that space where a revolution can be energized. There's another place where Francis Weller says, imagine the feeling of relief that would flood our whole being if we knew that when we were in the grip of sorrow or illness, our village would respond to our need. This would not be out of pity but out of a realization that every one of us will take our turn at being ill and we will need one another. The indigenous thought is that one of us is ill, all of us are ill, 
Taking this thought a little further, we see that healing is a matter in great part of having our connections to the community and the cosmos restored. This truth has been acknowledged in many studies. Our immune response is strengthened when we feel our connection with community. By eagerly renewing the bonds of belonging, we support our ability to remain healthy and whole. Grief cultivates self-awareness, which cultivates self-reflection, which cultivates self-compassion, which cultivates an alternative imagination for how things could be. Walter Brueggemann calls this bringing pain to speech. He says that the empire does not care that you're in pain. It only cares if you bring it to speech. So the empire's solution to prevent you from bringing your pain to speech is to commodify your pain and sell it back to you in the form of a shiny new product that comes in an Amazon box. We do this all the time. It will sell you a product that will either make you happy or make you numb to your pain. So we buy things all the time thinking they'll make us happier. We're convinced the reason we're unhappy is because we don't have the thing. Walter Brueggemann says, not me, let the record state, the church is often no better. He says most of the time the church also doesn't care if you're in pain. They only care if you talk about your pain. So to prevent you from talking about your pain, the church will turn your pain into guilt and hand it back to you and say, it's your fault you're in pain. Repent. Pray more. Work harder. Love God more. Have more faith. If you do not get healed from this on your own, it means you don't have faith. So go back, go away and come back when you're better. Whoa. <clears throat> if you run out of money or you are heavy laden with guilt, what are you supposed to do? Brueggemann points out in this book that I love that every movement in human history that has ushered in alternative ways of being human began when people were daring to bring their pain to speech. In Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, and the first thing he says is, I've heard the cries of my people. So what initiated the liberation? It was the people who dared to keep naming the pain. The civil rights movement began with marching with daring to name the pain and not be silenced. Movements all around the world for women's rights begins with marching. In fact, I just learned today that right now there's this major historic event happening in Iceland where hundreds of thousands of women have marched out in protest of uh, the domestic violence in Iceland and the gender wage gap. It begins with marching. It begins with not being silenced. It begins with putting on the sign, things are not okay. Think about protesting is truth-telling. It's grief. It's naming the pain. C. Pico stood up at Masquichis last year when the Pope was here, and she interrupted the show with her tears, with wild and unfiltered grief as if she stood and said, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. And she didn't care if the Pope wanted to know about that or not. She dared to bring her pain to speech. And so in Jeremiah 25, I want to show you this, um, the, the reference to the 70 years. I just want to show you something that is uh, uncomfortable and profound. Bear with. In Jeremiah 25, so this is what Daniel is referring to here. It says, and though the Lord persistently sent you, so he's talking to the leaders of the nation, okay, the elite, the powerful. Although the Lord persistently sent you, all his servants and prophets, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear when they said, turn now every one of you from your evil way and wicked doings, and you will remain upon the land that the Lord has given you and your ancestors from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and then I will do you no harm. Yet you did not listen to me, says the Lord, and so you have provoked me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, 
I'm going to send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, even for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these nations around. I will utterly destroy them and make them an object of horror and of hissing and an everlasting disgrace. And I will banish from them the sound of mirth and the sound of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. And you have to imagine, this is the weeping prophet. He's saying this on his knees. He's screaming. He says, this whole land will become a ruin and a waste and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. He is not speaking to outsiders here. He is not speaking to rebellious teenagers. He's not speaking at people in line to go see Lady Gaga. He is speaking to the religious authorities and the leaders of his people, to the landowners, the elite, and the ones making the decisions that trickle down misery for the common people. He's righteously angry about oppression and the hoarding of wealth. He's angry about turning a blind eye to opp oppression. And if you've never read any of the Old Testament prophets, you don't need to read more than a page or two to see that their primary concern was for the poor and the socioeconomically vulnerable in the land. And he says, God didn't choose you just because he really liked you. He chose you to be the alternative people who would live alternatively in the land, which is abundant with generosity. And you were chosen to live according to a law that would lead to rest and ease for everyone, including the land, not just you. And if you are shedding blood and causing harm in this land, I will not stand by in silence. And the chronicler actually says, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. The theology there being, the land needs a break from you. You are a violent people. You are an exploiting people. You have taken way more than you have given, and the land will get the rest that you have denied it. And that's kind of the, the theology of the chronicler. And as a Sabbath scholar, this is my, my dream sermon, so please know how much I'm holding back right now. <laughs> but um, I'll just remind you, because you do know, because we, we love each other. In Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath command is very clear. This is God's vision. This is where the road ends if we follow God's law, is obey the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox, your donkey, any of the livestock, or even the refugees and the foreigners and the undocumented citizens in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. In other words, so that those beneath you might rest as well as those above you. Remember, this is the last part, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And that is why the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so there's this allusion to the rest that we long for, but we're never going to have an imagination for how to get to that rest if we haven't yet entered into grief. And so the next text in Daniel, he says, Righteousness is on your side, O Lord. But open shame, as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you, open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. 
And the evidence of that is that nobody's rested. There's no rest. Daniel's grief, what I love about this, because it's an, it's an uncomfortable text, but what I love about it is that Daniel's grief draws him toward his people. His grief draws him toward his neighbor. His grief opens him to feel what the other feels, to see the pain that we all share, and he is moved toward the other and begins to share in the collective grief and the collective responsibility. He pauses for long enough to be able to say that we have all benefited from this system, or we have turned a blind eye, or we have said nothing, or we have imagined it was someone else's responsibility. We have given each of us a few bucks and felt justified in having contributed enough. We each of us have sat silently while our loved ones spoke hatred, or we didn't vote because it really didn't matter who won. We stayed home from the march, and we turned an entire group of people's pain back onto themselves by meeting their our lives matter with all lives matter, your pain isn't special. And then we went on to live as if very few lives matter. And in the space between grief and a new imagination, there must be a new imagination for how we got to the sorrowful state we are in. And I hate that these scriptures could be weaponized against vulnerable or marginalized people, as if to say, it's your fault that you're in pain and it's your fault that the system is bad. Like, as if, like, the person who's experiencing homelessness asking for money is the problem. I hate that these scriptures are sometimes weaponized against vulnerable people. It's not your fault that you were sur survived abuse. And I don't think that's what this text is about. This text is not blaming Daniel that he was thrown in the lion's den. The biblical text, we know this, always stands protectively over the marginalized and then looks up at the privileged, not just those actively causing harm, but also those standing by and imagining it isn't their problem. And the text says, you have eyes? Can you not see that things are not okay? Look around, why aren't you weeping? Why are we in denial? And so here Daniel is not blaming himself for his own torment. He's drawing near to his creaturely kin and saying, we are in this together. What you do over there impacts what I do over here. We are in this together. When one of us is in pain, we are all in pain. And when one of us rises, we all rise. When one of us rests, we all ought to feel it too. Rest. And so finally, in the, uh, Daniel 9, this is what Amy read, which was so beautiful at the end of her, uh, her set. He says, now therefore, O our God. So this is not an admission of guilt here. It's so beautiful. He says, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation in the city that begets your name, bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness. We're not going to prove to you why you should help. We're going to appeal on the ground of your self-proclaimed mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act and do not delay for your own sake. Oh, God, because your city and your people bear your name. And I love this prayer because I just hear the voice of God to Moses. He says, I have heard their cries. And it says here, illuminate the darkness, O God. Let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Shine your light on the shadowy places we dare not look. Turn our face toward the world you love, that we'd see, that we'd weep with you and with all of creation. It's a prayer. Give us back our tears. Give us back our tears from those who told us to stop crying. And may our tears flow like a river. 
cleansing out the muck and the mire that's clogging up the rivers of justice. That is on you, O God. We are wanting recovery as a people. We are wanting rehabilitation with this earth. We want reconciliation. We want renewal. And we are powerless to achieve it on your own. We know that now. We confess that to you now. And so it is on you. Hear us. Forgive us. Listen. Act. We release the kingdom back to you. Do something. We messed it up. <laughs> In Hebrews 4, um, one of my favorite verses, this is um, before we come to the communion table here. The author says, since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he calls a certain day today. Saying through David much later in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest yet remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through the disobedience of theirs. Instead of a prayer, there is a poem. It's called Vahavta by Aurora Levins Morales. Say these words when you lie down and when you rise up, when you go out and when you return, in times of mourning and in times of joy, inscribe them on your doorposts, embroider them on your garments, tattoo them on your shoulders, teach them to your children, your neighbors, your enemies, recite them in your sleep. Here in the cruel shadow of empire, another world is possible. Thus spoke the prophet Roke Dalton, all together they have more death than we, but all together we have more life than they. There is more bloody death in their hands than we could ever wield unless we lay down our souls to become them and then we will lose everything. So instead, imagine winning. This is your sacred task. This is your power. Imagine every detail of winning, the exact smell of the summer streets in which no one has been shot. The muscles you have never unclenched from worry, gone soft as newborn skin. The sparkling taste of food when we know that no one on earth is hungry, that the beggars are fed and the old man under the bridge and the woman wrapping herself in thin sheets in the backseat of a car and the children who suck on stones nest under a flock of roofs that keep multiplying their shelter. Lean with all your being towards that day when the poor of the world shake down a rain of good fortune out of the heavy clouds and justice rolls down like waters. Defend the world in which we win as if it were your child. It is your child. Defend it as if it were your lover. It is your lover. And when you inhale and when you exhale, breathe the possibility of another world into the 37.2 trillion cells of your body until it shines with hope and then imagine more. Imagine rape is unimaginable. Imagine war is scarcely credible rumor. That the crimes of our age, the grotesque inhumanities of greed, the sheer and astounding shamelessness of it, the vast fortunes made by stealing lives, the horrible normalcy it came to have, is unimaginable to our heirs, the generations of the free. Don't waver. Don't let despair sink its sharp teeth into the throat with which you sing, escalate your dreams. Make them burn so fiercely that you can follow them down any dark alleyway of history and not lose your way. Make them burn clear as a starry drinking gourd over the grim fog of exhaustion and keep walking. 
hold hands, share bread and wine, keep imagining so that we and the children of our children's children may live. Uh, and that poem is based on the book of Deuteronomy and the cry to tell your children when you wake up and when you go to bed that another world is possible. And we can't imagine that until we've grieved the one that we're in. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.